0: So, hello, my name is Michelle O'Brien, and I will be having a conversation with G. Kyra Shoy for the New York City Trans Oral History Project, in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is February 15th, 2017, and this has been recorded at the NYU Department of Sociology in Soho. Hello. Hello. So, um, tell me about growing up. Where were you born and where did you grow up and what was it like? Okay. Um, so I was
1: born in Denver, Colorado.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, growing up in Denver, Colorado was okay. I never knew my mother. I only had my father. Um, my mother abandoned me and dumped me in a dumpster when I was three days old. A homeless woman found me and took me back into the hospital. Um So growing up, I was very sick. Lungs wasn't developed. So um, I normally stayed in the house. Uh, My father took care of me and with one other sibling, which is my sister, um, Angelina. We grew up kind of confined because he was so worried about the world hurting us because we was mixed, Um, mother being Puerto Rican and white and father being Dominican and black. So he was really worried about how the world would view us. so about six, I think we moved to Texas, which was really different from Colorado, because Colorado, the schools are not all one race. Well, as far as Texas, Texas schools was all black, and then there was all white schools. So it was really, really different for us to adjust, because we didn't understand what slavery was. We didn't get that far in our education to learn like what slavery was, because we were still young. But in Texas, they teach that. Like, right in elementary school. Like, you learn exactly what black history is. You learn exactly what slavery is. Um, We stayed in Texas with my other siblings, which is on my father's side. Um, He had a daughter and a son by another lady when he was younger. Um, We stayed there until he got sick. And then we moved into a little place of our own. Um, Around 10, my father passed away. So, at that time, it was really rough on me because... Me and my father carried the same name, mm-hmm. and because we carried the same name and I was the only living relative at the hospital, it was my decision to take him off life support. So it was very hard growing up after that because you had your siblings blaming you for killing your father, but you also had nobody to go to during the time of being depressed. And definitely at the time of figuring out that I was gay. <laughs> so it was like there was nowhere to run. There was nowhere to t- nobody to talk to. There was nowhere to go. Your family didn't want you being gay, so you just had no way of knowing. Um, so after my father died, my brother was really like, he's really abusive towards me and my sister, but mostly me for being gay. He said there would be no punks in this family. Um, one day we went for a ride, and he was like, "I'm gonna teach you how to drive." Um so I was like, okay, and I'm thinking like this is the car. Um he pulled over to a dark alley and he told me, "Well, if you're going to be a punk, I'm going to show you what being a punk is." And he rapes me. Um several times and then took me home and put me in water and covered it up. Um so How old were you? I was 10, going on 11. Um So after that, I really got into the mentality of building my mindset of getting stronger and understanding that the world's going to view me as some disease or some unnormal person and I'm going to be targeted for the rest of my life. And I was right. (laughs) Um, We left and went to our stepmothers in Alabama. Things just got worse. The boyfriend didn't like me. Um, he locked me in the room with the padlock on the outside of the door and only let me out during the day to go to school like I was some kind of animal. When I came home, I was back in the room. Um, he gave me a bucket to pee in, and it was just like I was a prisoner. Eventually, he decided that he didn't want kids there. So my stepmother made a decision to drive us to Mississippi and drop us off at a bus station in Jackson, Mississippi where everything else just went upside down. Like the only person I had in my life they took from me. They separated me and my sister. Um I went into a group home where I was being beat by the other kids for being gay. Then entered a foster home where
0: how old were you when you moved um, to Mississippi?
1: I was twelve at that yeah. time. So from twelve to about Almost 13, I was in the same foster home where I was being hit, beat, talked about, called names. Um, Nobody's going to never see me. Nobody's not going to know who I am. Nobody really wants gay people in this world. You're going to die from HIV. That's That's where it came from. You homosexuals caused this. So it was mostly like, Every day seemed like I had to build my self esteem because of the verbal abuse and emotional abuse I was getting. Well, at the age of 13, I decided to transition. I left this foster home and went to another foster home um, through Catholic Charities. Mm -hmm. And luckily, the foster parent of the Catholic Charities put me with the the, um, young, well, the father of the house was gay. Which let me know that everything was going to be okay. Um, so I transitioned. Started dressing like a female. Um, started living my life as a woman. Why up having to go back to the foster home that I was in at first because Mr. Hinton died. Um, they found him in, a, in the building that he was cleaning up. Dead. Um, so I went back there. Transitioned it all. And I think summer was over. It was the first day of school. And I was a ninth grader. I had advanced to ninth grade, um, and which was good because middle school was like, I didn't know how I was going to do with middle school, but advancing was easier. Um, went to school in a pencil skirt, a nice blouse, and a pair of six-inch pumps. And the first thing I remember is, homeroom the teacher calling my name. Johnny McClinton, and all I would say was, here. And she would say, where? She said, Johnny McClinton. I said, here. She said, I'm not into games. Quit playing. I said, I'm sitting right here. And then she said, go to the principal's office. All of a sudden, I've had to go to the principal's office. So it was a debate in, am I allowed to dress this way in school? Or is it against the school conduct? And that's when activism set in. I advocated for myself and had the handbook and showed them there was nowhere in the rules that I could not dress like this. There was nowhere in the rules I could not express myself. My skirt was eight inches below my knees. My shirt was long. My shoes was closed toe. And my hair was well groomed. So nowhere in the the school conduct was there that I could not dress like this and express myself as who I am. So I went in front of the school board. And the school board said the same thing like, we can't tell her or him how to dress because it's nowhere in the school of conduct. And she's following the school of conduct by the skirt being eight inches below the knees, shirt being over her butt, hair being well-groomed, and nails being at a certain length. So that set a trend for me to move from D class to A class. And if nobody knows what D class is, D class is where you don't exist in school nobody knows who you are, nobody really cares who you are, and if they bump into you in the hallway, you just get bumped into. Mm-hmm. So I moved from D class to A class that year, where all the cheerleaders wanted to learn, oh, who dressed you, who do your hair? I'm like, y'all do realize I'm gay, right? And it was like nobody cared, because mm-hmm. I was. I learned how to blend in. And I think that was the scariest thing for me, like, I blended in so well to where people would honk the cars and stop and be like, oh, hey, how you doing? So it became a dangerous game. A dangerous game into fearing for my life because these people are stopping honking their cars, trying to pull me over, trying to get me to get in the cars. But then going to school was like so much fun because I wound up dating the quarterback. So it was like, can my life really be like this? Or is this just an illusion? For the time being, because this people at school accept you, but is society gonna accept you? So, I um, started working at this um, club called Club City Lights in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, a couple of my friends was leaving the club, and I was held at a gunpoint. Um, a friend of mine tried to help me and was killed. A couple of weeks later, a couple of my friends was out. We was in the gay club, and these guys, we didn't know were straight, picked them up, and we found them chained to a fence. Killed. And I felt like eventually that was going to be me. Because where, like I said, people at school accepted it, society still wasn't accepting people being gay. and Definitely not in Mississippi. And this was like the early 90s. Um, so... When I turned 14, I ran away. I went to California. Ended up in a shelter in California. Um, it was Beth Haven. Um, shelter in Richland, California. In Richmond. Yes, Richmond, yes. California. Um, and I stayed there for a while. And they gave me my own room because I was trans. Um, they helped me... Um, they helped me figure out what I wanted to do. At this time, I still wasn't taking hormones, but they was confused to why I had why I had breasts. Um, and so they took me to all the right doctors. I was diagnosed with an extra chromosome that allowed me to develop breasts like a normal f- female at the age of 12. Um, so everything was just going wrong. <laughs> like, everything was just not where I wanted it to be. It was like... I have breasts, and then I'm still, I'm in a shelter. Well, shelter, you can't really, you know, get the things you need to get your hair done. Or, so I was just like, I don't know what to do. So I started performing at Vallea, at one of the clubs, um, as a female entertainer. Um, I performed there for two years before realizing that's not what I wanted to do. Um, I ran into a lady named um, Junie Tate, which was a trans woman. Um, who was actually made it in the singing business, who lived in um, Richmond, and she got me in touch with a lady named Laura in San Francisco. So I went to San Francisco um, and started working as a volunteer at the LGBT Arraying Collegiate Community Center um, for the youth. And I worked there for, like, maybe three months before I was traumatized. Um, A young lady, well, a young man now, that wanted to transition, went home and told her father. The father beat her and threw her out the car at the Raymond Collegiate Community Center with broken ribs, a broken leg, and a broken arm. And right there, as I looked at this young person laying there, I realized that day that I wanted to speak for the people who did not have a voice, the people that could not stand up and speak for themselves, the people that didn't want to be seen and been hurt, that I could be strong enough for them to speak for them. So I started my activism work that day. And we went to court, we won the court case. Um, the, young, the young man was moved from the home. Um, he converted back over to being a boy because of being traumatized. Um, but I got him to safety. And through getting him to safety, I started my journey from San Francisco, California to Atlanta, Georgia. Started working at the We Care Clinic and this was like in early um this was about two thousand two, two thousand three. I stayed there for a long time working. I went back home to Mississippi, um, in two thousand and four and started a nonprofit organization called Um A Future Hope Center. And that ran really, really smoothly for two years where we was um training and teaching about lgbt rights and lgbtq rights as well as tgnc and getting people to understand that hiv didn't come from the um the lgbt community it was a disease that was caused and and way before any of us was born um as far as my generation it started in 1983 which the year i was born so it's like we didn't cause this disease. This disease has happened, it's out there, and we're trying to find a way to, to get rid of it or to at least help.
0: So this project you started in Atlanta, Georgia? No, I started this in Mississippi. Mississippi. I went back home to Mississippi. Miss- um, and what, what was it called? Future Hope Center. Future Hope Center. And was it a physical space?
1: It was a physical space. Yeah. Luckily for, luckily the young the lady that um, was my foster mother, she has several homes, Um, and we became better friends than mother and daughter. Um, and she donated her house, James Garfield, on James Garfield Circle, to, um, to the cause. Um, we gave out toys. We linked up with Toys for Tots. Toys for Tots gave us thousands and thousands of toys every year to give out. We linked up with Walmart, who gave us food for Thanksgiving and for Christmas that we gave out. And we linked up with, um... The Health Center um, in downtown Jackson that is run by the um, jackson Uni- Jackson State University. we linked up with them that allowed us to bridge access to care for the LGBT community and not be discriminated towards so after I felt like my journey was th- done there, I went back to Atlanta and um
0: how long were you working on that
1: project? So, I have work- I was working on this project for quite a while. So, I started this project in 2004. I went back to Atlanta in 2008. So, I worked on it for four years. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, it ran smoothly. It was successful. But I wanted to do bigger and better. Um, so, we went to- back to Atlanta, Georgia. I met my first husband. Um, and... We decided in 2009 to leave Atlanta, Georgia from Peachtree and Pine Shelter and go to New York. Well, at that time, none of us had any money, so we went to Travis Aid. Travis Aid contacted a friend that I had in New York, and they paid for the ticket. So we went to New York, went to the shelter system again. Um, and where everything was going okay, my husband started Heroin. So I left my husband, went to the single women's shelter, Franklin Avenue, stayed there for five months while staying there. I went to Franklin and went to, then I've transferred in 30 days to um, Park Slope, which is um, the shelter in Brooklyn. Um, Ran into uh, my mentor, which is Jay Tool. and jay was like oh, we're going to do gay pride this year we're going to do all these great things for the lgbtq i'm looking at jay like okay who is this little old guy and just started a conversation with jay about like how do i get involved i want to do i've been doing activism work for a while i want to get bigger and better i want to stay connected i want to get involved i want to i just want to make sure i'm helping and connect with the right people Jay said, come in and um, do, fill out a volunteer sheet for Queers for Economic Justice. I did that in um, 2010 and started an amazing journey with Queers for Economic Justice. Um, was in the shelter was in the shelter in Park Soap for five months, got my own place. Then started working back in the shelter that I just got out of running shelter, the shelter project program, support groups for LGBTQ. Um, and then we started in lower Manhattan. At that time, I was working in five different shelters, running groups five days a week. And then I looked around and realized, I'm the only trans in this organization. Where is everybody else at? And as I look around... I realized, like, oh, well, you're getting funding for trans-led programming for a trans staff. But y'all have not hired. I'm still a volunteer. Still not making no money. But because I love the work so much, I just said, okay, I'm going to do it. People need to help. People need to know. Um, so, yeah, I did that from 2010 and continued to do that all the way clean 2013. Um, when they shut down, but also was able to enroll into Trans Justice Community School by Audrey Lorde. Um, and graduated top of my class in April of 2013. Tell me about the school. So the school is, it's a select of four trans women and four trans men. They select, they selected people out of a lot of people, but me not knowing that I was nominated from by the whole building, which is Furious, SRLP, Queer I'm just and Audrey Lord for collaborating and helping them with a lot of the um, events. I was shocked when I got the letter saying, oh, you have been accepted into Transgender Community School. I'm like, I didn't apply. They were like, somebody else applied for you, but okay. Um, so the school teaches us how to um, mobilization, community organizing, and how to understand the spectrum between uh, racial justice and um, Discrimination, social justice, reproductive justice, and trans justice. So, also teaches about Marsha P. Johnson, Sylvia Rivera, teaches about the people who st- the um, all the great advocacy people that started the um, Stonewall riot, who advocated for us for so many years, and the legacy they left behind for us to continue and continue to build on top of so that we once can leave a legacy behind for the younger generation to continue to build off what we have worked for. Um, And knowing that and understanding that, I was, like, honored. I was honored to be part of that school. I was honored to bring my knowledge of the welfare system starting in the early 60s and how it was designed not for people of color, but it was actually designed for the white supremacists to go in and take people of color's children to actually start um, what we called – population control as well as eugenics Um, with Sir Francis Gallatin and all these other people who felt like people of color should only be limited to having two children and if they had more then we will find them and take their kids from them or as well as um, in California in the early 70s when people who came over from um, Mexico and other places they did not know how to speak English and the doctor would tell them if you sign this paper it will take the pain away and not knowing they signed the paper to be forced sterilized. So knowing all this and bringing all this history in, and then just knowing like where we stand at in this community as being people of color, but also being discriminated towards as being LGBTQ, was like an eye-opener to where I felt like, what, what more is it for me to do? Well, during that rough time, I actually lost my sister in 2013. And not my biological sister, I lost her too, but a sister I called Deja. She was, um, she's somebody who went to transgressive school with me. After graduation, after graduating in um, April, she died in May. Um, Her heart stopped. And we were supposed to change the world together. But we never got that chance. So everything I do now is in honor of her. It's keeping her memories alive. Um, And that year in June, I went back to Texas.
0: Tell me more about Deja. What was
1: she so, like? Deja is originally from Texas. She's originally from Houston. Um, she is a southern. She was a southern belle, and her spirit was just like. Once she walked into a room, you knew there was a burst of energy. You knew that everything that she wanted to work on, she did it with love. She did it with kindness. She was helping people. She was, at all the time, she had a hole in her heart. She was sick, but she didn't care. Only thing she cared about was continuing the movement and continuing to help the transgender and gender non-conforming community. Um, and like I said, I only known her for a, few, for a few for a little while, but really never got a chance to really do what we set out to do. Me and Deja was like the girls from Sex in the City. Once a week, we'll have we'll have lunch and wine at Olive Garden um, and sit down and just talk about what how we've seen. The vision for what we wanted to do. Mm-hmm. How we're we going to start our own organization and how we're we going to implement it and change policies and change it for the better. Mm-hmm. Um, but that never got a chance to happen. And like I said, everything I do now is in honor of her because it was our dream to change the world together.
0: Um, were you uh, living at the shelter in Park Slope while you were at the trans justice school? No, actually I was, was in that? my
1: own apartment by then. Oh, okay. I had my apartment in in- in the Bronx um two hundred thirteenth street, mm-hmm. last stop on the four train um, but then that was different too. Me being a trans in a Puerto Rican Dominican area, yeah. I never got discriminated towards in my community. I never was disrespected, um not even by the younger generation, like they had so much respect for me. And that meant a lot to me, just to know that people are changing. But are they changing the way we need them to, or are they just being acceptance? And that's always the question I ask. Um, But living there was good. I mean, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed every bit of it. Um, But like I said, in June, I left and went to Texas. Um, my, My sister died. So... I stayed there for a while. Um, by then, I've already had two strokes. I had my third one after she died and started having seizures. Um, I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia as well as arthritis in my back with sciatica and dementia and nerve damage from my diabetes of being juvenile, having diabetes since I was 10. Um, and I laid there in ICU. After my blood pressure dropped to 16 over 4, thinking about, like, is this the end of my journey? Is my work done? Have I done everything that I set out and I wanted to do? And that was no. I wanted to do so much more. So, um, luckily, a few days passed. My blood pressure went back up. And I hit the ground running. I came back to New York um a friend of mine I met at a focus group and it was funny because we don't never we never go to this focus group we never go to the group with Moshe it's so funny that we both ended up there and she's like hey how you doing I'm like I'm doing good she's like um so I just want to ask you I started an organization called NITAG which stands for New York Transgender Advocacy Group I said okay she says I need your help I'm like I'm there so We started running around. Um, We got incorporated within the first year. We became 501c3 in the first year. And we started looking for funding. Um,
0: What year was that? This
1: was in 2015. Mm -hmm. Um, So later that year, in 2015, I had to leave. Um, Because I wasn't feeling well. So I went back home. I was diagnosed with stomach cancer. So I went back to Texas to spend time with my two beautiful nephews and to spend time for my brother. Um, and at first I thought I was going to be like, okay, I'm going to stay here. And then I was like, this is not what I want. So I came back to New York in July <laughs> and was like, okay, I got to I gotta figure out what I'm going to do. I'm sick. The cancer came back twice. Am I going to let this cancer stop me from doing what I want to do? So at that time, Kiara contacted me again and was like, You know, we just got awarded funding. And I'm like, Okay, cool. She says, But I need you back. I said, Okay. So we executed the contract and we started working from there. And this was in 2016. And we started working from there and we just started really staying on top of it. Um, I'm part of the ETE um, um, Bronx Collective. I'm also part of the ETE meetings throughout um, the five boroughs. ETE? Ending the epidemic. Mm-hmm. So I stood on that coalition, um, And I- I'm all the way around now. I'm not just focused on trans and gender non I just executed a contract for MSMs um, as a expansion program to NITAC. Um, and now I'm still working on ETU work as well as working on um, Angel Advocacy Program that we started, Youth for Change that we started. And our own CAD group, community advisory um, group that we started. So my work is still going. Um, I'm still sick. Um, the cancer has came back. But I'm okay. I'm battling it. But I'm battling it with an outcome of understanding that the work that I'm doing means so much more to me than delaying a hospital bed and be sick. So it's it's more, it's more now a need to do this work. Is more now a need to for change, because the four years that we're gonna face is gonna be hardship, and I feel like if we can't come together and continue to do this work, then a lot of our programs are gonna die off, and we can't let that happen. So you know, I'm in this work to continue this work. Um, I leave in April for the Clip Conference. Um, to continue reproductive justice, um, and I'm just,
0: what is the clip conference?
1: So clip is civil, civil, liberate, silver liberation, wait a minute. civil liberation, policy, um, programming. Mm-hmm. There we go. Mm-hmm. So um, I do that every year, um, just because I believe in the work that they're doing. And because the first year I ever went to the CUP Conference, um, Hampshire College did a... um, So they did like a little... um, They took one of the wings of the college and did a mural of Trans Life Matters, and they really, really want to learn more about trans issues and how they can help And what can they do to be part of the movement? And that that hit me really big because, like, so for so long, trans people had problems in colleges. So for this college, to understand like trans people are here and their lives do matter and they deserve education, is a big thing. It's a huge thing. I feel like for so long we've been fighting and fighting and fighting and For so many years we look and we don't see what was the outcome, but this is the outcome. And we'll continue to fight for more and more years before we see another outcome, but it doesn't mean that that we have to stop fighting, because once we stop fighting that's when our people die off, and we owe it to our people as activists to continue to fight. And NITAX owes it to our community as as a policy changing organization to implement policies and bring them to action. And to change the policies for the trans and gender as well as the LGBTQ community.
0: Tell me more about NITAG's work. What have you guys worked on? What have you, where have you put energy? What have you accomplished? What do okay. you hope to do? So
1: NITAG, when we first started and before we even had funding, we was doing the lobbying at the state senate, um, working on gender. Um, we've been working on gender for quite a while. It has been passed. But we've also implemented policies into doing cultural competency training with Department of Health, as well as Public Health Solutions, Housing Works, um, Mount Sinai, Karen Lord. So part of what we do is we do cultural competency trainings around trans and gender non and how people should treat them and be, know that they still exist and be respectful of their needs. Because so many times we see that the reception at the front desk can be rude and turn and a trans person will turn around and walk away as well as a gender forming. So what we try to do now is we try to we're building um, we're widening our perspective of, of how to take what our trains and put into a policy to where now when you look at a handbook, it is your policy, it is your right and it is your responsibility to be respectful at all times with pronouns how the person self-identifies, and as well as the person's username. Because what happens so much is that people see a name on an ID, and a person can say, well, my preferred name is this, and they won't use a preferred name. That's problematic. And it's such a big problem. Um, Our goal is, like I said, we're expanding our programming to MSMs for Youth for Change. um, And we're targeting 13 to 39. Um, and the reason why we're targeting 13 to 39 is because so many youth programs are 13 to 24. But what are you offering them while they're in them? So what are we offering? We're offering educational training programs. We're offering peer advocacy programming training. We're offering, um, if you want to go to school, linkage referral program. Um, we're offering a linkage referral program to health care, to um, HIV prevention, um, PrEP, PrEP and PEP, um, Hep C trainings. So Nitec is forming these trainings so that people could understand and know that they can be trained and they can work in this field. And they don't need to be scared to do it. And one of the things I tell them, and I tell everybody, I sit here today as a program director with no credentials, no high school diploma, no GED, no college degree, no vocational training. It doesn't take a college degree to do this work. It takes... Dedication, life experiences, and knowing that you're dedicated to doing the work and knowing the, what the work means to you. So NITAG is opening them doors for people to understand that, and open the doors so that people can understand like we can help you get to where you need to need to get, as well as we do have referral programs for housing and, and HIV prevention and HIV ca- counseling, as well as our trainings and what we how we see it, and our board is on t- our board is with that.
0: How uh, has NITAG received
1: funding? Where does support come from? So our support comes from PHS, which is Public Health Solution, the Ryan White Foundation, um, um, funded NITAG three years at $133,879 a year. Um, It's the first grant ever for translated organizations. It was a new project they decided to do. And if it works successful, they'll continue to do it. But we also just did an RFP for MSM capacity building through PHS, again, and with um, DOH, with the Department of Health, um, to expand our programming to, to all of the um, LGBTQ as well as MSMs and gender non and trans community. So that's where our funding is coming from right now. But we are looking at other funding through Arcus Foundation, Australia, NOVO, Robert Hood Foundation and others. Um, we just we just landed a deal with uh, Microsoft Word, where they're util- helping, letting us utilize their space for fundraisers, any trainings, as well as training us in um, in their programming, and giving us certificates after completion, as well as the let, util- letting us utilize their volunteers and donating whatever time the volunteers spend to NITAC. So um, our next goal is to contact Google um, and to see where they could fit in with what we're doing. Um, And just understanding that Google and Microsoft are competitive. So anytime that you want to utilize Google and you already have uh, Microsoft, if you let them know that Microsoft is helping you, then Google can be competitive and tell you what they can do. Um, We have started our fundraisers, which the first fundraiser was February 11th. The next one will be um, March 23rd, but our youth symposium will be March 4th to kick off youth for change oh, great. so these are things that are in play these are things that we're very happy about um and we want to continue to work within the community and create bigger and better programming who are the, some of the leaders and staff in NITAG so Nighttag, you have the CEO and president which is Kiara St. James you have the program director which is myself um Jakara Shoy you have a co-founder which is Tanya Walker you have a trans coordinator, which is Karima Fatima. You have um, another trans outreach coordinator, which is Anya. You have a MSM leader that is that have created the program Youth for Change and that is program manager, which is um, Watson Williams. You have the um, event coordinator, which is Leah Williams, and we also have a linkage agreement with the House of Excellent Entertainment through Leah Williams. And you have the outreach
0: coordinator, which is James Blunt. And what's your relationship with Housing Works, the organization? So Housing How Works
1: helped us bridge what NITAG is today. We started talking about NITAG out of a focus group out of Housing Works on West Thirteenth Street. Well, Kiara works was working for Housing Works mm-hmm. as a consultant, and they believed in everything we was doing. So they was paying us to go up to Albany. Um, they gave us utilize. They gave us space to utilize in Housing Works on Willoughby, um, just for our groups, as well as space where we could work out of. Um, Charles King is amazing. He um, has been supporting us ever since. So has Carmelita. Um, And one of our board members is a Housing Works worker. His name is Reed. Um, His name is Reed. And he is the co-chairman of our board. Bolly White is the chairman and she's out of DC. Kenyan Farrow is um, one of the board members. Carmelita Cruz is one of the board members. And Ewan is one of our board members. So our board is pretty strong. Pretty strong. Um, I think, like, we have one of the strongest boards possible right now. And we're going to start our youth retreat. I mean our youth retreat, but our board retreat. Um, and that's going to be in April for the board to get to know each other, um, connect with Kiara, as well as, um, just making sure that they're helping her build her capacity and what she can do and what she could bring to NITED. Uh,
0: I'm interested in hearing a little bit more about employment. So, you uh, are working as a program director now. You talked about doing performance uh, in California. Tell me a little bit about how you've made ends meet over the years. Well, um, so, how I made ends meet over the years, when I first started,
1: I started off on PA which public assistance. I was making $83 every two weeks, and I lived off that for a while. Um, and then after my second stroke, um, I was fully favored for disability. Um, and I made ends meet with that, but I'm also still performing. Um, I, so f- I perform as the um, house mother of the House of X. So that brings in money. Um, and I made it basically just off... Being on disability and taking the majority of my money and putting it back into the organization, just off that, I mean, it was tight. It wasn't, it wasn't a lot, but I was able to sacrifice a lot. Yeah. I was able to make sure I knew what was important, um, and I did it. Performing brought, like I said, a, 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 some change in. It wasn't much because you make a hundred dollars here, a hundred dollars there, but. I think my biggest thing was understanding, understanding that I enjoy the work that I do and that there was going to be sacrifices, and those sacrifices include, included making sure I had a monthly metro car to get back and forth where I need to get to, making sure that um, my bills was paid, making sure my cell phone stayed on at all times. If I was broke at the end of that, then I was okay because that kept me on the path of getting to where I am today and being a program director and still performing, it's it's hard, don't get me wrong, but it gives me a chance to take everything that I'm feeling, all the emotions I'm feeling through work and let me put it on stage and just release it.
0: Tell me about performance, about the scene and your experience.
1: Sure, so um, like I said, I'm the house mother of the house of X. Um, Performance is, lip syncing is one of the things that I would say is not as easy. (laughs) Um, but my type of music is Latin pop and R&B. So the music I pick is really things that I can relate to. Um, I like music that I can relate to so that dealing with work, I can release whatever negative energy that is. It's my place of healing. It's my place of sanctuary. When I'm on stage, I think about nothing but pleasing the audience. Um, Performance Coming into my life Helped me cope with Everything I was dealing with It helped me cope with being raped It helped me cope with being sick It helped me cope with Not having enough money to do things I want to do It also helped me cope with Understanding that For so long Our generation have been Has been Described as um, Drag queens performing And now it's a new is a new thing as being just um, female entertainers. So performance allows me to... It's like, it's like a burst of energy. It allows you to rejuvenate. It allows you to look at the world differently and knowing that I'm a program director over here. I'm a female entertainer over here. And I'm doing two things I love to do that I thought I couldn't do because of the work. But then I'm still helping everybody with doing both of these things. I'm helping the people that just need somewhere to go by performing. I'm helping people that actually need help in their everyday lives by being a program director. So for me, they go hand in hand. Performance is one of the things that I would tell people. I don't think I could be the best program director I am today without performing. I don't think I would have been able to understand and be able to relate without performing. Because performance helps you relate. It helps you relate to the music, but also helps you relate to everyday life. And being a program director and performing allows you to be more sensitive to people's needs and understanding that just because you don't have that need, people have these certain needs that need to be met. And it's your job as an activist and community leader to sit down and really not dictate and not judge but be like, I'm here with you. And I'm here for you. And that allows me to sit here today and be able to tell my story without tears, without a place where I was five, six years ago. Because I've, music have healed me. And it's continued to heal me. And perform continues to heal me through the work I'm doing and through not being a victim of rape anymore. And taking my life back and living my life, so that other people could see that there is something positive comes out of all of this. Uh,
0: tell me about the broader support and community for uh, trans women and uh, in the ball scene in the house scene. So, so my dealings with the house scene is
1: I am a show in pageant house, um, and what we do is. So what we do as a house, we're actually performing at the CK Life event, gala, which is a wonderful program ran by Kim Watson. Um, and that helps for hormones and helps for surgeries. People do not have the insurance to get that, as well as a scholarship program. So the House of X is providing entertainment for that. Um, We provide entertainment and we do fundraisers to raise money for the transgender community as well as genociforme and the LGBT community. The money that we raise is to help with hormones, is to help with resources, is to help with food, is to help with clothing. Um, The kiki scene, the ballroom scene, is more towards HIV prevention and helping people with PrEP and um, helping them afford it. Help them. Let them know that if you can't, you come to, you come and let us know, and what we'll do. Excuse me. Oh. What we'll do is we'll raise money and we'll do events to make sure that this medicine is affordable for people who cannot afford it. These are the support systems we give. We encourage the transgender and non community to be part of the ballroom scene because it also is a place where you can go and you could belong without anybody judging you. It's a family. It's not people come together and friends. No, we we utilize and we talk about the space as being a family space, a space of a, a space of peace and safetyness where people will love you for who you are and not judge you for who you are. And this is how we see the ballroom scene as well as it's the drag scene is a place of to belong to and be a family and understand that if you're ever in a time of need, your
0: family's always going to be there for you. And I asked you about your own experiences with work and making ends meet and financial support. Um, tell me some about some of the kinds of ways that you see trans people that you work with in New York and elsewhere well, making ends meet. So trans people
1: and gender non as well as LGBTQ people... We tend to go to sex work because that's where you make majority of your money. Back page, Adam for Adam, um, Urban Chat, BGC. And we want, to, we want them to understand, okay, we understand this is how you make your ends meet. But we want you to be safe. We understand that you're out here selling drugs or out here selling hormones or out here selling yourself. But we want you to be safe. We find that people... In our community, feel like the only job they'll ever get is being a sex worker. So why do people take that? Try to take that from them. But we want to give them a different outlook on life, and that, let them know that, yes, yes, um, sex work is a way that we make money. We've all done it, and we don't judge you for that. What we ask is that you be safe with it. What we ask is that. You come in and you get tested, or that you take pep or prep, or that you make sure your viral load su- suppressions are low, or you make sure that your T cells are low. You make sure that you're healthy. That's what we care about. We're not. We don't care about being sex workers because we understand. We're not coming to you as white supremacists or high class supremacists and saying, "Oh, we look down on, we frown upon you because you're doing that." We don't do that. We just want the safety of our community. We want our community to be respected. We want other people to understand that just because our community is doing sex work does not mean that they don't have the right to care. They have every right to care. But these are some of the things that we're facing, and these are some of the things that our community does to make money. Yes, they sell their food stamps. Yes, they um, sell hormones. Yes, they even sell their... Um, their um, They're viral uh, medicines. Why? It's because there's no housing, there's no jobs, and everybody wants to tell them, oh, well, you don't qualify. You need to come back with more credentials. So the only thing they have is sex work. But like I said, and I'm going to say again, we're not here to judge them for that. We want them to be safe. We want them to understand that we're here to make sure they're safe and that if anything happens, then we're here to advocate.
0: What's your understanding of why trans people you work with have difficulty getting formal jobs? Um, well, it used to be
1: discrimination towards, okay, they come in, they say the name is such one thing, but then the ID says another thing. Um, it used to be, um, oh, well, because we do have some trans people in the community that might come to work today dressed as a female, and might tomorrow feel like, I don't want to dress as like a female, I'm just coming in. That's fine, but what happens is, is that People start judging them for that. Then people, then they, our community feels like, oh, because we don't, they don't have a GED or a high school diploma, nobody's going to hire them. Or they feel like if they get hired, people going to talk about them. So they choose not to do. The, they choose not to put themselves in these situations. They choose not to go out here and get these jobs because they don't want to be discriminated toward. They don't want to be judged. So what do they do? They do the only job they know that nobody's going to judge them for because it's money and everybody, everybody's pleased at the end of the day. So they go out and be sex workers. Um, and we want to change that. We want to change that with starting an educational programs. We want to change that with starting scholarship programs. We want to change that with start with doing vocational trainings, and starting sustainable income. Sustainability is big in our community, and that's one of the things we're going that we're going to start within our second, just going in between the second and third year as a co op initiative, as creating sustainable jobs for the gender, transgender and gender non conforming community as well as the LGBTQ, as starting coffee shops. Bookstores, furniture stores, thrift stores. And we're starting this, and we're working on this now to have this implemented and in place within the third year so we can create more jobs. Wow. What do you see as the future for uh, trans communities? The future, what I see for the future for the transgender community, I feel like we're here to stay. I feel like with everything that Night Destination Tomorrow... Um, Prince Janae Place is starting and um, Trans-Latina Network is starting I feel like with everything that we're doing that we're going to we're going to survive and we're going to be places to where there's going to be more trans-led Corporations, Not organizations, but corporations. They're going to be trans-led businesses. And we're going to be here, and we're going to have our own money to do it with and We're not going to need the money of government officials or organizationals, people to tell us how we can spend money, what we need to spend money, and what we need to do with it. I feel like this is starting to mark for us to have our own businesses. And it can happen. And it will happen.
0: I'm interested in how uh, trans organizing is connected to other social movements. So you've mentioned this Reproductive Justice Conference, the CLIP conference. You've uh, talked about a lot about the connection between AIDS services and trans organizing. Um, how do you see the connection of your work to things like Black Lives Matter, or the protests against Trump, or immigrant rights work, or other movements well, in the United States? I mean, As far as the immigrants'
1: rights, um, we have transgenders that are in, that are immigrants, so we're very connected to that. Why is because trans people come here for sanctuary; they come here from all over the world for sanctuary. So we're we're involved with that, like we're connected because we their issues are our issues. Why? Because we're trans, for one. Two, because we're immigrants. Black life matters. We are people of color. We have African-American trans, we have Asian trans, we have Latino trans, we have a lot of trans. The trans community is wide with different um, races, so we are connected with Black Lives Matter- Matters. The other movements are social so- as far as social justice, social justice is a social justice movement. Just because we're trans doesn't mean it's not a social justice movement. It is an economic justice movement. Why? Because we need money. It is a reproductive justice movement. Why? It's because trans people want to have kids too. So we have the right for reproductive rights and reproductive justice and reproductive health and all that. Everything, and this is what I tell people when I I talk, is that everything that is everybody else's problem in this world is ours too. We're connected to everything because we're still human and we still matter. Just because people want to separate us doesn't mean that we're not out here fighting for cisgender people, or we're not out here fighting for the LGBT community, or we're not out here fighting for um, MSMs. And people would know that because when the Stonewall riot started, it started because of a trans person. But what did we do? We fought for not just the transgender community, but we fought for the LGBT community because at that time transgender was nothing to be named. It was it was a new thing happening. Um, so We're connected all the way around, but we always stand here and we fight the fight by ourselves because nobody wants to jump on board and fight our problems with their problems because they say that we're different from them, but we're not. That's why we're fighting your problems, our problems, and everybody else's problems. Trump, yes. Are we aware that he's going to make it tough for us? Yes, but is he going to make it tough for the LGBT community too? Yes. So what does the transgender community do? When we write policies, we write policies to implement them for everybody, and not just the transgender community. Immigration laws that are being passed, we're trying to implement them for everybody, and not just transgender community. As well as mobilizing with other organizations. NITAC got a chance to do the AIDS Walk in D.C. Um, and I mean, it was wonderful. NITAC also did the Women's Day March in D.C. I mean, my, my toes got stepped on like 16 times, but, you know, we're we're not a community that doesn't fight for the rest of the world. We are a community that continues to fight and understand that we are part of this world, whether they want us to be part, whether they want us to be part of it or not. We're part of all these communities just because we're trans doesn't mean we're not part of the LGBTQ community. We're still part of that community as well. Just because we're trans doesn't mean we're not part of Black Lives Community, uh, Black Lives Matter community. We're part of that too because we are. Some of us are African American. Some of us are immigrants. So we're part of that movement too. But the problem we find is. When are people going to realize that they're still part of the transgender community? Why? It's because we're one community. Because we're trans doesn't make us any different from anybody else. Because you're cisgender, LGBTQ, or even white class supremacists. It doesn't make you any different from us. Because at the end of the day, if you don't get out there and work, you have no job. If you don't get out there and bust your butt, you have no food on your table. If you don't pay your bills, you have nowhere to stay. So how does that not correspond with economic justice? How does that not correspond with social justice? And how does that not correspond with the LGBTQ, TGNC community? Because we're fighting the same fight with you, but you want to separate us, but that's fine. But we look at it from a bigger picture. We look at it as all lives matter. Not just black, not just Asian, not just white, not just cisgender, not just LGBTQ, not just trans or gender nonconforming. All lives matter. And until everybody understands that and jump on board with it, then we're still gonna be fighting separately. But the transgender community is gonna oversee a lot more than what the other communities are gonna oversee because we could we're not gonna to continue to um, look at it as fighting alone. We're gonna to continue to fight for everybody and we could continue to be part of these movements and we could continue to be there and understand that this movement is bigger than one community. Is there more that you'd like to add
0: in this interview?
1: Um, No. I mean, I feel like this interview has been very successful. I feel like I've got my point across, and I feel like people listening to this will understand where I come from as being a trans person of color, but also where I come from as just being a human being and wanting to live my life and fight for other people.
0: Thank you, Chicago. I really, really appreciate speaking with you. Thank you for having me.